media tends to be, um, these days, it tends to be purchased by the wealthiest in society, which generally speaking doesn't involve uh, marginalized groups. Media properties are tremendously expensive and often not that profitable. Sometimes they are, but sometimes they're not. So they become vanity projects for a lot of people, right? You, if you're rich and old, you either buy a sports team or a newspaper or maybe both. Um, and, and that's part of why it's not in the zeitgeist. If you are, uh, if you're looking to get wealthier, there are probably better places to invest your money than in a, a media organization. But that's, these are all contributing factors, which is why Marginalized groups don't have that much of a voice. Leadership changes and ownership changes do have a big impact on these things. Welcome to Candid Insights. I'm your host, Sahil Badruddin, and today we have with us Ali Velshi, television journalist and MSNBC, and a senior economic and business correspondent for NBC News. Ali, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Great to be with you. I want to start by talking about media bubbles. You might have heard of this term post-fact society, that we kind of live in a world where individuals feel entitled uh, not only to their own opinions, but their, to their own facts. And I think this kind of leads to a series of knowledge bubbles, perhaps, where we limit and self-select whether, you know, out of fear, ideology, worldview, or, or other motivators, what knowledge we expose ourselves to. How do you think we can first actually recognize we've wrapped ourselves in a bubble and then break free from them? So I think there are two separate issues that you're covering here. Uh, one, which I think is really important and it's been going on for a long time, the, the self-selection and getting yourself into a bubble, it's exacerbated by both social media and the fact that we're able to, however you consume your news, curate it in a way that you only get things that affirm your beliefs. And I think the second one is the, uh, the idea that uh, opinions trump facts, right? And the second one is really dangerous because we're living in it right now with the pandemic, right? This whole debate, we're six months, literally almost six months of the day that we had the first coronavirus case in the United States, and we're still debating mask use and social distancing. There's no debate about this. It's, it's scientific fact, and every other country that has practiced you know, mask use and social distancing has leveled the curve, has, has, has flattened the curve. So it's, it's two separate issues. None of us should wrap ourselves in uh, in a bubble, and, and we really have to very actively work at getting out of it, right? That's just something we all kind of do in a world where you can choose your news and you don't have a shared information experience. But the, the second one is you can't actually choose to maybe kind of include facts in your bubble. If you live in a bubble uh, that doesn't include facts, I, I don't know how you fix that because you're probably not listening to this podcast and not watching me on TV. So I don't know how you get there. But I, but I think they're two separate and, and important bubbles. The reason that they're connected is because it sort of falls to all of us to have conversations with people who are living in that post-fact world, right? To, to sort of just push back on it. I got a video sent to me last night, six minutes long, amazing production value, looks really good, and it was in total crap. It was about uh, the deep state having uh, seeded coronavirus and funded a lab in Wuhan to develop it so that it could be unleashed uh, at a moment when you know Trump uh, was, was riding high. Nonsense, but it was amazing to watch. I mean, it was really, really compelling, 
good stuff. So you can't even tell. It used to be that crackpots would write things that had spelling errors and capitals mixed with small letters and they looked like manifestos from the Unabomber. And now all of a sudden, it all looks like the same, right? It all looks like news and everybody's a journalist. So I think you have to, you have to identify both of these problems for yourself and, and say, how do I get out of my bubble and how do I make sure that we are only debating matters of great import on a level of facts, that we don't, we don't give quarter to people's nonsense because it's all around us. And you have to actually say, we're not having, we're not, we can discuss that, but, but these aren't the facts. And that's a, that's a harder thing to do because we not only self-select in social media, we self-select with our friends and the, the places we live. So you don't tend to necessarily have that concept challenged all the time. So you have to kind of look for it amongst your friends and family and contacts and say, let's, let's, let's at least agree to the facts and then we go forward from it. I think one of the biggest struggles we have as a society is trying to uh, expose minority views and uh, people who kind of don't have their voices heard as actively. And I think when we have echo chambers, when we have media bubbles, when we have this self-selection, we kind of are not looking at these views. Have you found any measures or best practices perhaps to kind of actively share those voices? So I don't think there's any secret to how you have to do it, right? It just takes work. You have to find people to interview who represent a, a broader spectrum. You have to look for some of these views. One of the problems with uh, an embrace of democracy, which I have, and I think in democracy is the best system, is we associate it with being majority rule. We associate it with being, well, if most people feel that way, that's how it should go. When in fact, the most important thing about democracy is minorities and protections and views. So when you, when, you know, you think about um, free societies, the freedom is the freedom of religion, the freedom of, of practice, the freedom of, of uh, your views. And that means protecting unpopular and less popular and less exposed views. So I think those of us, particularly in mainstream media, um, we don't have the, the right muscle memory to do that. So, you, you know, when we, we, most of TV on cable news, for instance, is guest-driven, right? You book a guest. Well, the guests who are easiest to book are those who are published, those who have PR reps, uh, you know, those who are already in the circle, those who are in your, uh, your guest tracking software. It takes work to find other people, mm -hmm. particularly those who don't have voice already who don't pay for a publicist, who have real stories to tell, but they're not out there. So where do you find them? And I just think that that's gum work, like gumshoe work. You just actually have to go out there and say, I'm going to find other voices. If we're talking about this neighborhood or this city, we're going to figure that out. And by the way, hard enough to do when you're not in coronavirus. Now you're in a world where we don't travel as much and you don't find people in the street. And you don't just approach them and ask them about stories. So it takes even more work. Uh, to do it now. But I don't think there's any way around it. I think that's what we have to acknowledge what we don't know, uh, understand the voices we don't hear, and then try and find them. But you understand the difficulty in that, right? If you don't know that you don't know that voice, then you don't know what you're not hearing. So it's, it's, a, it's a big issue. I think we're confronting it now. And, and if we succeed, uh, in, in a year or so, we will have a much broader exposure to, to, to many more voices in the mainstream media. If I, if I talk about like critical thinking, and perhaps courage to be true to ourselves in our commitment to finding truth. Do you think that's helped in kind of breaking bubbles and encouraging people to just really a commitment to truth or it's, it's, it's still the, you're still seeing the same things for the past few years. It's still the yeah. same trouble. 
I think I think that view of things would be far too optimistic. I don't think we've actually broken too many bubbles. We've broken a few. Uh, I think these protests, the, the 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 social justice protests that we've seen in the last few months, have been very effective in breaking some people's bubbles. Usually, mainstream uh, people of privilege, right? It's the first time that a number of people are sitting there saying, "Oh, hold on." Uh, Privilege is not is is something real. Like I actually do enjoy it, and it is it is at somebody else's expense. But fundamentally, I don't think we've made grand strides with this. I I, I don't think. In fact, I just wrote a piece today that said that when we look back at this year, uh, let's say twenty five years from now, we're going to say that this is the year in which which we hit peak ignorance, right? Mm-hmm. That 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 opinions trump science and intellectualism and academia and expertise and fact, uh, and that as a result of that, tens of thousands of people who didn't need to die, died. So the bottom line is I think we're at peak ignorance. It's, it's uh, one of the most damaging things in our history, and it may cause us to rethink it. So maybe by 2021, we won't be living in peak ignorance. We will understand that we have bubbles. They don't allow us to uh, think critically. Uh, there are lots of voices out there that we need to hear, and we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't minimize excellence and expertise and intellectualism and academia uh, and things like that. I mean, this battle that's going on right now between the White House and Anthony Fauci, it's inconceivable that such a thing is happening. Today, if you go to the CDC to find out about COVID deaths, it's been removed from the website. The government is actually keeping statistics from people, right? That's sort of a basic thing. They gather these statistics and they share it and smart people and academics can go and research them and come up with policies. Gone. So uh, I'm hoping that everybody realizes how serious this is and that peak ignorance, which, by the way, brought us smoking for years after we knew that it caused cancer, that continues to bring us uh, the climate crisis uh, and is now making the pandemic much, much worse than it needed to be. I hope we realize this stuff kills us. We actually have to stop. If I shift our conversation towards Muslim perception, you've often criticized that the media focuses on sensational, violent and negative stories of which the Muslim world has managed to offer over the past few decades. This obviously dominates the news cycle when it does, uh, to the exclusion perhaps of positive stories, which are not as often reported, which leads to a skewed perception, and we've been talking about perception of the Muslim world. What have you found to be effective to, to address this? Well, so it's just part of a bigger problem, right? That everything in the news is uh, focuses on the negative and, and not the positive. And we've got so much news that, you know, people say, why don't you tell positive stories? Well, I, I, yeah, we have a lot of news. We actually have to tell you stuff. So uh, I think it takes a whole reframing about everything. And, and you could replace Muslim there with a lot of things, right? Um, African-Americans in this country ha- have a very similar complaint. Uh, so there's lots of stuff where we only focus on, on the sensational stuff and we don't, it's the same problem that we were just discussing. We don't have the muscle memory to say, what are the good stories? What are the good examples? Once in a while, we, we get smart about these things, right? We, we discover there are interesting stories out there. So one of the most interesting things in the issue of coverage of Islam was when Donald Trump uh, went after the parents of that gold star uh, soldier who had, who had died, the gold star family, the, the, the soldier who had died. And, um, that sort of made people understand that that wasn't just sort of a a thing that seemed to be prejudicial, but it was about Muslims. And the common view amongst Americans was not that Muslims had much to do with the U.S. military. So suddenly you started seeing these Muslim faces in the military, people who 
had been in the military, who just like anybody else, not necessarily by virtue of their, their religion or their faith, joined the military to support their country. One of whom, uh, in this particular example, died in the service of his country. And that caused us to examine certain things. What we have to be careful of is not to fetishize it, right? Not to now go out of your way and find uh, things that might feel like standouts to make your point. If you just reported on everybody more fairly, then you wouldn't be dealing with the extreme examples on, edi- on either side. So in the case of Islam, terrorists on one side and people who do things that you would never imagine that they were doing, right? Most of society lives in the middle. Most of society are not evil. They don't do bad things, but they live their lives and they, they uh, you know, bring up their families and they, they follow the law and they pay their taxes and they're loyal to their countries. We don't do, as, as media, we don't do a great job of telling stories of everybody in the middle. And so we have to do that for everybody, all of society, and then we have to start to do it for marginalized groups. And if part of the issue with Islam is that it is, for all the Muslims in this country, it still remains unfamiliar to most people. So the prejudicial story takes root because you don't have a personal experience to overcome it. So that's, you know, I, I'm from Canada where the experience with Muslims is very different, right? It, it doesn't have, there's not this deep-seated societal prejudice uh, the way there is in the United States. So it's a hard thing to overcome. And you're right that the media has a, a, a major role in contributing to people understanding, having better stories of Muslims all around so that they have reference points against which they, which they can measure. Makes sense. If I talk about social media now, I think social media plays a large role in the spread of knowledge today. 2016 Pew Research study cited on The Guardian reported that six out of 10 millennials get their political views on Facebook. Now, I'm sure it's shifted to perhaps, you know, other means, but uh, making the 1.7 billion user social behemoth the largest millennial marketplace for news and ideas in the world. But within Facebook's ecosystem exists a world of intellectual biomes created by users whose interest in interacting with opposing political views is nearly non-existent. And we kind of got, we kind of talked about this earlier, um, about how people are being fed news they want to hear rather than, uh, you know, something that challenges them. But what I want to get here at is leaders, right? So speaking broadly, the leaders in organizations and institutions will also probably adopt uh, echo chambers, perhaps without even realizing it. And I think that when leadership is exposed to views and echo chambers, that it's not a healthy leadership at this point, clearly. So how do you think we can kind of help leaders recognize that they're stuck in these echo chambers and you know, uh, media bubbles, etc. You know, I don't know that there's any logical way to do it. The, the two things that have moved the needle with corporate leaders in the last few years have been Me Too and Black Lives Matter, right? Until it explodes in front of them. In other words, there are lawsuits, there are boycotts, there are staff revolts, and there are customer revolts. Nothing happens, right? Leaders are about making money for their companies. Uh, I, I, I don't even know that it's something that a lot, and listen, I'm an economics journalist, right? All I did for years was interview CEOs of public companies. I'm not sure most people are even looking to solve this problem. When it becomes untenable, they are forced to solve it. And a perfect example is uh, school shootings, right? There were a lot of companies that were under pressure to do something about guns or can you, can you carry guns in their stores and things like that. A lot of backlash. And then suddenly Dick's Sporting Goods decided we're not selling uh, long guns at our stores. And, and it's it, Dick's Sporting Goods has a, uh, a branch of the company called, um, 
I've forgotten what it's called. It's in the, it's their stores in the South, but that's where they sell guns in, in most cases. And they decided not to. And they knew that they would take a hit from their older male, uh, mostly white, uh, clientele. But they decided that's okay because they'll gain clients elsewhere. Generally speaking, women and younger people uh, who, who prefer these strong stances. But you can't do something like that if it's not authentically who you are. So the problem in corporate leadership, in business leadership, is not whether there's a rule book or whether they do the right things. It's either you are authentically interested in treating your customers and your employees as your constituency, deserving of respect and reflective of the society in which you work, or you're not. If you're not, you can't fix it. You're, you're, you're in your echo chambers anyway. We've seen this. We've seen it with Black Lives Matter. We've seen it with Me Too. We've seen the companies that have done the wrong thing. And in the end, until your staff and your customers and the world and the news and the protests uh, revolt, people don't change. So what you saw is a lot of companies saying Black Lives Matter and this is what we're going to do and we're putting this much money toward diversity. And then you saw Ben and Jerry's. Everybody should go and look at Ben and Jerry's tweet after Black Lives Matter. They brought it. Right? They don't come to a, a gunfight with a knife. They came in and said, we get it. This is a real problem. And, and you know, they've already they've got an authentic presence in, in terms of social justice. Patagonia has an authentic presence in terms of social justice. So when you're looking at really changing your outlook, it's got to be an authentic presence. For many years, companies decided to have departments called corporate social responsibility. So it got shunted off to a department. You're the one who makes sure we contribute to the right charities and we're marketing in the right places and we're using disposable bottles or whatever. But it was not authentic to the companies. Now, part of the problem is the makeup of companies and their boards, right? Um, America is uh, renowned for the fact that, they're, that uh, corporate boards do not represent, they're not representative of the population in any fashion. There aren't many women on them. There are very, very few corporate CEOs who are women. There are very few uh, board members who are women or members of, uh, of minorities. In places like France and Norway, they've mandated, they've sort of figured that the way you solve these problems is starting at the board because the boards hire the CEOs. The boards determine how these companies act. And if you have, if you mandate in those cases that there are, uh, I think I'm making it up, but a percentage of women on those boards, you will find a trickle down effect. So I, I don't, I don't think anybody comes about this um, all that honestly. I think you have to be forced in some cases by government, in some cases by the media, in most cases by your customers, and in some cases by your staff to change. And if, if they don't change it, and if there's a movement to change it, people are going to live in their echo chambers as long as they can. Yeah. Interesting. You know, I think there are sometimes news outlets for sale, uh, for example, I think the Times of London was on sale at one time, and also the Atlantic, if I remember correctly, uh, was also at sa for sale. Have you seen wealthy people of perhaps you know marginalized group or marginalized organizations take a larger interest in media um, and perhaps you know buying news outlets uh, or taking a uh, a active stance in news outlets in general? No, uh, for two reasons. One is uh, people don't get involved in things that they're, they're not typically involved in. So there, there just hasn't been, news media has not been uh, fairly well represented. So, you know, people, people do the things they know. And the second thing is marginalized groups tend to uh, focus media efforts on outlets that uh, fall within the range of the things that they consume. It would be kind of neat if marginalized groups took control of or to controlling interest in mainstream media groups, right? That would be the change. But right. mainstream is thought of as mainstream. And a lot of marginalized groups say, 
if we're going to do something, we're going to do it with this local paper or this, uh, this type of outlet or this podcast or this uh, sort of TV station that, that uh, caters to the, to, to the particular audience that we'd like to. And I think that's an interesting concept, right? Do you, do you use your power to cater to the people who you know are your audience or do you use it to actually move the needle elsewhere? And that's an interesting, interesting concept. Again, media tends to be um, these days, it tends to be purchased by the wealthiest in society, which generally speaking doesn't involve uh, marginalized groups. Media properties are tremendously expensive and often not that profitable. Sometimes they are, but sometimes they're not. So they become vanity projects for a lot of people, right? You, if you're rich and old, you either buy a sports team or a newspaper or maybe both. Um, and, and that's part of why it's not in the zeitgeist. If you are... Uh, if you're looking to get wealthier, there are probably better places to invest your money than in a, a media organization. But that's, these are all contributing factors, which is why marginalized groups don't have that much of a voice. Leadership changes and ownership changes do have a big impact on these things. What would you do to perhaps encourage it and, or help uh, people who want to pursue journalism but are, in, are, in a, are a minority in the context of journalism? What would you say to them? Well, I think it's a it's a twofold process, right? One is you have to encourage the people uh, who who might get involved in this to continue to do so. And in my career, that has changed dramatically, right? When I was um, when I started in this career, I was boy, I was a minority of a minority of a minority. It was really really rare and mostly tokenish uh, to to have uh, minorities, for instance, on on TV. Now it's much more important and it's it, the success rate is much greater i mean there are young people who are engaging in in the various aspects of journalism whether it's tv or written or, or podcasts uh at a rate that's fantastic with high quality work so there's that piece of work and then there's the other piece of work which is from our end as companies right what do we do to nurture to develop to uh put these people into our pipeline uh to train them to understand uh the perspectives that they bring to uh, to the field, that's been slower, and that's harder to do, because sometimes we feel a little commoditized. So we're not really looking at people who don't normally fit in or aren't from that back. We're just trying to get everybody in and get the work done. So it takes work to try and figure out how do you make this a welcoming environment. How do you, particularly if you take p the pandemic out of it, we were in a very low unemployment environment, right? It was, it, it, you, you're actually looking constantly for new producers and new journalists at a place like NBC. How do you make it a constructive place for people to work? How do you make them choose you over someone else? That's actually our bigger problem. We want to nurture these things, uh, you know, the people and have them choose us. So, you know, at NBC, we've struggled with this in the last few years because there've been a lot of uh, criticisms about the the way the company has been managed for a while, and and I, I think and I hope that we've learned from it. We've we've made a lot of changes, and we really are making commitments, for instance, to diversify our workforce. But we also every year in normal times go to all of the conventions, for instance, that are held by uh, groups of journalists who might be underrepresented, Asian Americans or um, uh, African Americans, and we go and we hold sessions and recruiting things. So you have to you have to really try. But if you don't try, you will miss the boat on this one because we are a field that people can choose anything they want. They can choose who, who they want to work with. If you are not seen as a place that is respectful of and nurturing of different perspectives, they'll just choose someone else and your product will suffer in the end. Now, what advice would you give to minority communities, which again, have trouble getting out of their silos to 
get more civically engaged? Uh, you know, that's, a, that's an interesting one because what happens, there are two kinds of minority communities, right? There are those that are well-established, but outside of the mainstream, not for their own reasons, but because the mainstream keeps them out. Um, and I think we're starting to see that, for instance, with African-Americans, right? We're starting to realize the degree to which the, the life of an African-American in America is entirely different uh, than it is uh, from, for other people, from a safety perspective, from a social justice perspective, from a criminal justice perspective, from an education perspective, from a housing perspective, from a how you get a loan perspective. Like we're understanding that society has been broken toward uh, African-Americans and that's going to take societal change. On the other hand, you've got groups that uh, maybe keep a little more to themselves for other reasons, right? Familiarity, um, the idea that maybe they're immigrant communities, so they're, they're working hard and, and economics and prosperity play a major role. So who's got time for civic action and, and politics or even journalism? Uh, in a lot of minority uh, communities, journalism is not understood as something that is necessary or participation in politics is not understood as something that is necessary. And what we've seen in the last few years in America is real efforts to bring people into politics, civic action, uh, protest, journalism, where they haven't been in the past. But it, it takes work. I mean, there are groups that have sprung up to, uh, to nurture women who are running for political office, because typically speaking, women don't have the same infrastructure that men have to support a run for political office for minority women. And, and you saw the fruits of this in 2018. You saw record numbers of women and minorities being elected to not just Congress, but local races. So it, it, none of this happens by chance. It's all gotta be something that's thought out. Uh, but communities have to look at what's going on right now. The movements that are going on and say, are we sufficiently represented? Are we sufficiently active? And remember, a lot of communities shied away from political activity for fear of being on the wrong side, right? It, it, it really uh, occurs to immigrant families, immigrant uh, communities, because in many cases they came from a country where being on the wrong side of politics meant destruction for you. But what success looks like in America, if you're a minority or you're, you're marginalized, is to be involved in politics on all sides, right? Why not, why not have members of your, your group or community running for office for whatever political parties are running or running against each other? Uh, the, 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 we've got to understand that decisions in this country are made, they're made for you if, you if you're not a participant, if you're not at the table. So you've got to figure out ways to actually have a seat at the table. I'm starting to see that happen more, but it's, uh, it's just got to be a realization. And by the way, sometimes it's not a community level realization. Sometimes it is. Sometimes just an individual realization. This is what I can do. This is the impact I can have. This is the imprint that I can, uh, I can impose. So I'm going to do it. It is hard because sometimes you don't get support from everybody in your community. When I started off as a journalist, I got more weird looks from people in my community who say, is that a, is that a thing? Like, why can't, can't you be a lawyer or a doctor or something like that? Uh, but you have to sort of commit to these ideas. I see. Religious, uh, by religious cultural identity, you're a Shia Muslim. How does that part of your identity impact you today? Um, it's not like a badge, right? It just is. Um, it, it, it finds its way to the front more often if there is something in the news that makes it relevant or someone's being critical or someone's being uninformed uh, about Islam. But I, you know, I think all parts of my identity, I, I'm a Kenyan-born uh, Muslim who grew up in Canada. Uh, all of these little bits fit into things that I do on an ongoing basis, but I don't think it's any different than anyone else, right? It's, it, 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 I'm a little older than 
the movement that is engaged in identity politics, right? I, I didn't grow up with identity politics. I don't really understand it as much. So maybe if I were half my age, I could give you a better answer. I could tell you it informs me because of this, this, and this, because I find that every young people I talk to can tell me how every bit of their identity informs their, their behavior and their politics. I, I, I come from a place where it was probably a little more um, in the background. It didn't really play a major role. It, it pops out every now and then when it needs to, but it, it doesn't tend to, I, you know, I, I don't get up in the morning and identify with a political party. I don't get up in the morning and uh, think about it that way. So um, it's just there. I, it doesn't really have a, it doesn't have a, a manifestation on a daily basis other than in my own life. I see. Yeah, the reason why I ask is because there are people in the Muslim community uh, who look up to you whether in journalism or other things as perhaps a role model, do you feel that you have a kind of responsive, more of a responsibility now of identifying to an identity? And do you think there are lessons perhaps you want to kind of share with those individuals? It's a, it's a really interesting question because I got involved a few years ago with a group of Muslim journalists in, uh, in New York, just talking about sort of things that were going on outside and how best to, use the platforms we have. And there was a real interesting difference in school of thought. There were people who thought that if you have a, if you belong to or have a particular identity, that it is your responsibility to uh, illustrate that and to illuminate it and to use it in, uh, in the determination of stories and how you cover them. And there was another school of thought of people who said, really your best responsibility is to break barriers because we're not at a point where all barriers are broken. So break barriers, get into the newsrooms, get, get seated at the table, get the promotions necessary to then be in a position to make really good decisions, generally speaking about coverage and hiring. And I was watching this debate in a very interesting fashion because the two different sides of it felt very strongly that their, their perspective was, was valuable. And I, I see both. I think it makes a lot of sense. I think, I think there's no one recipe for this, right? There are some people who are just going to fit into the established system and advance, and in their advancement will prove the point and then will, will have an influence on others because they will be seen as role models and, and they will be able to make coverage decisions and things like that. And there are others for whom every story they write is driven by their identity. And that's not just about Muslims. That's about everybody. Right? There's some people I meet where everything they do is driven by their identity and they, for, they, they, they advance the cause on that front. And I think the world is best made up of, of a combination of those people. So I think that um, anybody, any, any member of a marginalized group, any Muslim, any person of color who wants to get involved, let's say in journalism, should have the freedom to do so for the reasons that anybody who's not marginalized should do so, right? So if you're not marginalized, you can go into journalism because you just want to succeed in the profession and, and, and move up the ladder, or you can get in there because you really want to move the needle. The bottom line is if you are a journalist, you have two responsibilities. The first one is to bear witness, to tell people what's going on. And the second one is to hold power to account. And you can't do number two without doing number one, right? If you don't, if you can't tell people what's happening, then you can't hold anybody to account. Every journalist has those two responsibilities. And regardless of how you approach your identity and the role that it plays in your field, if you do both of those things properly, you will serve the field, you will serve your communities, you will advance as a journalist. So to me, it's, it's, uh, it's chocolate or vanilla, but they're both, both ice cream. I, I think they can both work. Uh, I think it's a worthy matter to think about if you're getting into journalism. Where are you going to be? And by the way, it's not, they're not mutually exclusive. 
right? You can, you can excel in being a topic, a subject matter expert with a deep sense of identity uh, conveyed to your viewers, listeners, or, or readers, and you can sell, excel otherwise. I just, I, I just grew up in a time when it was less common to, to have your identity be part of your work as a journalist. In fact, it was probably frowned upon when I was, uh, when I was coming up. Now I think you can make that choice for yourself. And, and, and I'm so pleased to see that people have the ability to make that choice. And I think whatever choice they make is okay. Last thing is I want to talk about the future and specifically your vision for the future. This is a little deep, but what would be a vision that you have that the world can achieve perhaps in 25 years and any insights or suggestions you would give to help achieve this vision? Yeah, well, look, I, I think there are, um, I think the most, I don't know if it's the most pressing. I've got a, a couple of baskets of the things that are most important in the world. And, and I think we have to remember climate change is probably way up there because we will cease to exist if we don't deal with this issue. And we certainly are not dealing with it in a meaningful way. So I certainly hope in 25 years, we will look back and say, back in 2020 or 2020, 2021, we, we decided how serious this was and actually decided to take action on it because otherwise we'll all be burning by that. So I, I suppose that tops my list because it's, um, it's existential. I think social justice and, and income inequality are the biggest problems in our time. Um, we, we want for nothing in this world. We're not sure, you know, in my lifetime, we have talked about starvation and running out of oil and running out of water and running out of food. None of that's going to happen. We're not going to run out of food. We're not going to run out of oil. We're not going to run out of water. We're not short of anything on earth. We just distribute it uniquely badly. So and I'm a capitalist, by the way. I'm, you know, I'm not a socialist, but why do, we, why do we distribute our wealth so poorly? Why are the top five richest people in the world, they have the same wealth as the bottom half of humanity? So I think we've got to really think about that. But most importantly, I think the, the more important part of your question is how do we get there? We're going to have to become better at discourse, right? We're going to have to, in fact, full circle to the absolute beginning of your, your interview with me, we've got to get out of our bubbles a little bit. You don't have to agree with other people. You, that's the beauty of our society. You don't have to agree with them. You don't have to share their views. You don't have to approve of their lifestyles. But boy, you do have to talk. You do have to engage them. You do have to win in the arena of ideas, not in the arena of force, in the arena of uh, I have bigger numbers than you have. We have to win on the basis of ideas. And part of the bubble problem is that we're not exercising those muscles. And the stuff that's going on in America is not going on to the same degree everywhere, but it's going on all over the world. It's us versus them. Uh, and, and, and politicians and leaders have done a great job of pitting you against everybody else so that you're not concentrating on what really matters. Changes in economic policy that will, that will fix climate change and that will fix income inequality. Right now, we're all just busy fighting with each other. And that has to stop. We will look back at this age and not only say that it was peak ignorance, but boy, you, people bicker a lot. Why can't you actually debate, come up with solutions and, and get them done? I'm hopeful only because people like you exist, because my generation has messed this up entirely. Your generation thinks about these things. You're smarter about it. I, I would only caution to a younger generation, it's easy to get set in your beliefs. Be ready to debate. Be ready to engage. Don't, don't, don't shut down debate. Engage in it. Win on the basis of good ideas, and you have a chance now to save the world. My, my generation wrecked the chance, but you still do. There's something I kind of live by, and it's it's this idea of thoughtful opinions held loosely, right? And where 
right? Ready to change when new evidence kind of comes in at any point. Uh, but you still are very thoughtful and vigilant about holding firm and being true to yourself and, and change. So that's science, right? That's how science works. That's how um, you, you, have, you make a decision based on the best evidence in front of you. And when new evidence comes in, you're going to have to amend what you thought. It's evolution. It's consensus. So I think if, if part of our problem is we're anti-science right now. We're anti-intellectualism. So we don't realize that, that what you just described is in the best traditions of liberal arts. It's in the best traditions of, of, of science, right? People who say, we are on a journey of discovery. Keep discovering, keep asking, keep looking for solutions, and keep amending your perspectives until you get to the, the right place, or at least that you can bring people along. I think that's really a good way to look at it. Uh, look, do you hold loose opinions on racism? Probably not. Or loose opinions on uh, equality? Probably not. But can you listen to people, and can you hear what they're saying, and can you in some fashion validate their opinion of it while arguing your case. I think that's, that's a, a good, good goal to have. Ali, this was insightful. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much for inviting me. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Candid Insights. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe or follow us on social media for updates on future episodes. If you've already subscribed, please leave us a rating or review. It does help new people find the podcast. I'm Sahil Badruddin, your host. And for a transcript of this interview and others, visit my website at sahilbadruddin.com.